God, we thank you uh, for giving us yourself, and we thank you for giving us your word in order that we may truly know you as we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit. God, we pray now that you would store up your word in our hearts, that we may not sin against you. Bless you, God. Would you teach us your statutes? God, I pray you would give us grace to delight now in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Would you give us grace to meditate now on your precepts and to fix our eyes on your ways? That help us to delight in your statutes and not to forget your word. And we pray now that as your word goes forth, that it would not come in word only, but that it would come to us in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would open with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22, the sixth book of the Bible. We're in Joshua 22 this morning. Uh, Because the last time I preached, we were in Joshua 21. Uh, Whenever I get to preach, uh, when Pastor Dan is out of town, we've been moving through Joshua. Uh, It feels slow to you. I think we've been making pretty good time. And here we are in Joshua 22. We're almost done. I'm going to start by reading the last three verses of chapter 21. Perhaps some of you remember that the last three verses of chapter 21 provide a soaring summary of all that's come before in this book, and revisiting these verses will helpfully, I think, set the stage for what we are about to see in chapter 22. Joshua 21, verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So that is the story of Joshua. God was faithful. He kept his promises to Abraham. And to Abraham's children, who grew to become this great ancient nation, Israel. And God saved these people out of Egypt. He redeemed them for himself to be his people. He established himself as their God. And then God entered into covenant with these people. He gave his law to them, and then he led them to the land he promised Abraham and his descendants. The land of Canaan. And then God planted his ancient people in this ancient land, just like he promised. So by chapter 22, the basic plot line in the book of Joshua is over. Israel took the land because God gave it to them. They conquered all of the inhabitants uh, as a means of the judgment of the Lord um, and as a means of God fulfilling his promises and faithfulness. So God gave what he said he would give, land and rest and victory And he withheld not one good thing he promised. And God has even, so to speak, taken up residence among them, uh, dwelling in their midst at the tabernacle, which at this time was set up at a place called Shiloh. 
That will become important later. And so now the question becomes, moving this point forward in salvation history, how will things go for Israel in the land that God has now given? Will they keep covenant with the God who redeemed them, who has chosen to dwell among them? And that's the story of much of the rest of the Old Testament. And that story ultimately brings us to see the need for a new and better covenant established after a new and better redemption. So the last three chapters of Joshua, so all we have left, they form a distinct conclusion to the book and bridge the story of salvation, of redemption, to the book of Judges and beyond. The last two chapters, which we're not looking at today, are a couple of farewell speeches of Joshua. And he charges the people to live in ways that are fitting for those who have been made God's people by God's saving grace. But before those farewell speeches... Chapter 22, we get one story about Israel after they've inherited the land to give us an indication of how things are going to go. And this important story in chapter 22 shows us great priorities God has for His people, and it shows us the great proneness that Israel had and that we have to fall short of those priorities. So if you look at chapter 22 now, this narrative begins with a scene that emphasizes how the work of the conquest is finished. Look at verse 1 with me now. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And you have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. So what exactly did these two and a half tribes do? in obedience to Moses and to Joshua, that makes them worthy of this commendation. Well, verse 3 tells us, You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. The Lord your God charged you, do not forsake your brothers. And you were careful to keep that charge for these many days, even till now. You've not forsaken them. Well, in what sense did they not forsake their brothers? Uh, The commands Joshua refers to were mentioned at the very beginning of the book of Joshua. In chapter 1, remember these two and a half tribes who were singled out here, specifically had asked Moses, Joshua's predecessor, for some land outside of the promised land of Canaan to the east of the Jordan River to have as their inheritance from the Lord. And so as the Lord brought his people on the way to the promised land after he brought them out of Egypt, uh, the Lord gave his people victory over the nations in between those places as they opposed Israel. And with the land outside of the land of Canaan already conquered and securely in control of ancient Israel, these two and a half tribes look around and thought, well, this land here, this looks good for livestock and we have a lot of livestock, so... Let's see if this can be our inheritance. Uh, You don't have because you don't ask, right? So initially, Moses responds to their request incredulously, and he even reprimands them for suggesting this course of action, uh, mainly because he thinks that would discourage the rest of Israel from actually obeying and trusting the Lord and entering into Canaan to take that land as their inheritance, like God promised. Uh, But the two and a half tribes assure Moses, they say, no, no. We won't settle down in this land, even if you give it to us, in the east side of the Jordan River, until our brothers have won their inheritance in the land of Canaan as well. We won't settle down here 
until we cross over the Jordan out of our inheritance into Canaan, fight side by side, shoulder by shoulder with our brothers in battle, and we'll only return to the east side of the river when they have received their rest from the Lord. And in Joshua 1, this commitment of the east side tribes is reaffirmed before they enter into Canaan. And sure enough, they did not forsake their brothers. They went into Canaan, they battled with the other nine and a half western tribes, and they stayed until the land was given. So here in Joshua 22, Joshua gathers the east side tribes and he tells them, Well done, good and faithful tribes. Go now, enter into the rest of the inheritance God has given you east of the Jordan. You have not forsaken your brothers. They have their rest. They have their inheritance. You can lay down your swords now. You can go home. In verse 4, Joshua gives them the go-ahead to return home. Look at verse 4. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. The time has come. Now, now the Lord has given rest to your brothers. So now it's time for you to go to the rest the Lord gave you as he promised. We see the great responsibility that God's people have for not forsaking their brothers. Let me ask you, when does your responsibility end for the well-being of your brother in Christ? Did you know that's your responsibility? When does it end? Not until your brother enters his inheritance and enters his rest. When, as the church sings sometimes, he crosses Jordan's stormy banks into Canaan's fair and happy land. It is only appropriate to leave your brother's side once their rest is won. That is, it's your responsibility to ensure that your brothers endure to the end in faith, as Pastor Dan has been preaching often. In Second Peter, uh, the theme of endurance and persevering has come up a lot. Christians are called to persevere in faith until this life is over and their rest is won. The book of Hebrews, just to give one example, teaches clearly that we are responsible to help ensure that our brothers endure to the end in faith. This is part of the means that God uses to keep His people. So while your brothers in Christ are still striving in this life to enter into God's rest, like Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about, you have a responsibility not to forsake them and to try to see that they, through faith and patience, inherit the good promises of God. That they endure in doing the will of God and so receive what is promised, as Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 talks about. And the flip side of this truth is you should know that you need other brothers and sisters in Christ to help you persevere in faith and obedience and walk out a long, patient, repenting faithfulness until the promises of God are realized in full in your life. So back in our text in Joshua, uh, the Eastside tribes' special responsibility to their brothers was now over. So Joshua sends them home, reminding them now of an enduring responsibility they have to the Lord. So having seen the great responsibility of not forsaking God's people, 
Now is laid before us the great responsibility of not forsaking God Himself. Look at verse 5. Joshua charges them, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all His ways, and to keep His commandments, and to cling to Him, and to serve Him with all your heart, and with all your soul. What a wonderful charge. This is the heart of true religion in every age, including ours. Love the Lord your God. Walk in all His ways. Keep His commandments. Cling to Him. Serve Him with all your heart. Serve Him with all your soul, with all that you are and have and do. This is the greatest responsibility placed on God's people. Don't forsake your God. And so Joshua strings together several variations of, I think, basically the same foundational responsibility. You're headed home back east. You can lay down your weapons regarding your responsibility for the conquest in Canaan, but don't let your guard down about this responsibility that you still have to the Lord. Two little words in verse 5 that precede the list of commands show the chief importance of them, of this responsibility to the Lord. They're right at the beginning of the verse. The words only and very. Joshua told them only be very careful to do this thing. As you head back to your inheritance, this one thing you must remember. This is your foundational commitment. And similarly, Joshua said, be very careful to do this which stands out because in verse 3, he said, you have been careful not to forsake your brothers. Now in verse 5, he says, be very careful not to forsake your God. And really, the foundational nature of this Godward responsibility was underscored in another way in verse 3, when Joshua reminded the Eastside tribes that their obligation to their brothers was at root a command of God. So we see a coming together of these two great responsibilities. The responsibility of not forsaking God's people, for us, of not forsaking your brothers in Christ, is part of the more fundamental responsibility of not forsaking God. So a responsibility to serve God entails, by nature, a responsibility for the well-being of God's people. How can you say that you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother who's right in front of you? After giving them this charge in verse 5, only be very careful to love and serve God, Joshua sends them home. Look at verse 6. That was his parting words. Verse 6, Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, all of you, I assume, uh, leave this place to go home And you face many, many various uh, challenges, perhaps, but responsibilities certain, unless you're like six or under, and then your life is, woo, right? (laughs) Very few responsibilities. But for the rest of us, um, we go home, and there's a lot on our plate. Well, no matter what responsibilities you go home to from this place, 
you need to make sure that your sense of responsibility is calibrated correctly. There are a lot of responsibilities that will compete for your attention and your concern and your energies and your effort and your anxiety, and rightfully so. But in the midst of all that you're responsible for, you need to remember that if you have been saved by grace and made a part of God's people, then the most foundational responsibility that is on your plate is that you love God and you serve Him wholeheartedly. Some of you don't know how you're going to be able to fulfill all the responsibilities before you this week. What should I do? Will I be able to accomplish it all? How should I go about it? Well, you make sure you remember first things first. Only be very careful to do this one thing. You cling to him. Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments. You may want to memorize Joshua 22, verse 5. You may want to pick out one of the five uh, infinitive commands from verse 5. Make it a special matter of prayer and meditation as you go about your business this week. So as you go about your work, God, help me to walk in all your ways. As you care for your children, God, give me grace to keep all your commandments. As you go about your studies, God, help me to serve you with all my heart and my soul. As you go about your leisure and recreation, God, give me grace to cling to you and to use this time in ways that promote the love of God in my heart. And do you know why Joshua tells the two and a half east side tribes to be very careful to do these things? Because he knows the heart of man. They were prone to wander and were prone to leave the God that we should love. Be very careful to pursue the fulfillment of this responsibility. And verse 7 gives a little more detail on Joshua's sending home of the east side tribes. Look at verse 7. Now, to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of Jordan. So I think there's a very good reason why the author goes out of his way to show, and actually, this part of Israel on the east side, part of Israel on the west side, is, is such that one tribe is split in two. Um, that emphasizes and foreshadows a great theme that will be developed in this chapter, the unity of the people of God. The, the, the tribes on the east side and the west side should consider themselves to be the same people of God, so much so that, that there are even members of the same tribe within the people of God on either side of the river. And then at the end of verse 7, we're told again, Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them. Verse 8, and he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So you've shared your brother's responsibility in conquering the land and now sharing your brother's blessing of conquering the land. Take a lot of stuff with you on your way home. And this, never mind. That was a command that Joshua gave. And the other command Joshua gave the people in this verse, 
be sure you divide this stuff up amongst yourselves on the other side of the river. Uh, It's almost as if Joshua is telling them, when you return to the east side, don't forsake your brothers there either. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. You haven't turned away from your brothers here. Don't turn away from your brothers when you return home either. You've remembered them in war. Remember them in peace also. Uh, Sometimes it's easier, isn't it, for us to remember our responsibility to our brothers in the middle of hardship and trial and crisis. Uh, The fires of affliction can forge an incredible unity and sense of brotherhood amongst God's people. Sharing a common enemy or sharing a common suffering can draw us together. But can God's people stay together in lighter times? Do you remember your responsibility to and for your brothers in Christ when everything seems to be going well for each of you? We must remember not to forsake each other, even in the midst of apparent blessing and comfort and ease. Verse 9 closes the first scene. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. So they go home to Gilead, and the Holy Spirit-inspired author of this book is careful to note that the two and a half tribes depart from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And Shiloh is mentioned specifically as the place of departure to prime the pump for what is about to happen. The nation will be brought to the brink of civil war. And it has everything to do from the east side tribes not living by Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle had been set up at that time. And the tabernacle was uh, a portable temple, a tent temple, uh, built according to God's command for how God wanted to be worshipped by His ancient people. It was the place where God said He would uh, manifest His presence among His people. It would be considered His dwelling place amongst His people. And the people of Israel were to gather for worship at various times in the year, before this dwelling place of the Lord. And they were to offer sacrifices to Him and bring offerings to Him and rejoice before Him at this tabernacle only. This was the specific place God had chosen uh, to put His manifest presence at this point in salvation history. And so the law says, the law of Moses, when you go into the land uh, that I'm giving you, then to that place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell, there you shall bring the sacrifices and offerings I command. Take care that you do not offer offerings at any place you see, but at the place the Lord will choose. God also says in the law, any one of the house of Israel who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So when we hear, they departed from Shiloh, we're supposed to think, oh yeah, that place where God dwelt, Uh, that place where they were all supposed to worship and sacrifice and nowhere else. And they left Shiloh. Oh, and where was Shiloh? Well, the author points out again, seemingly perhaps superfluously, but actually for very good purpose. Shiloh 
which is in the land of Canaan. You know, the land that they're leaving because they don't live there. So we've heard of the great responsibility of not forsaking God. Now we hear of great concern over forsaking God. Look at verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Oh, no. An altar other than the altar of the Lord in the tabernacle? Joshua told you to remember one thing. Be very careful to remember this. Just keep God's commandments and love Him. And the moment you get back to Gilead, you build a massive altar for worship. Not at His tabernacle, just like He said not to do. You had one job. Don't forsake God. And immediately when you return home, you begin a building project on a giant false worship center. Now, news of this altar travels to the west, and as you would imagine, panic ensues. Look at verse 11. The people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. They think we have to do something about this. So they make a plan in verse 12. Uh, they say, we've seen in the very recent past that God who saved us is a jealous God. And so he responds to idolatry and disobedience with severity. He's jealous. His name is jealous. He's told us, him only shall we serve. We've got to do something about this. So verse 12, when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Now that would be the solution they come up with, wouldn't it? And it certainly fits with what's been happening in the book of Joshua. They gather to make war. It's right for them to do so in this case. This is actually in accords with what God commanded in Deuteronomy. But this war-making is truly tragic, isn't it? We just read how God had given the people of Israel rest on every side. Rest! No more war. Conquest over. And here they gather to make war again. Now against their own brothers. While the West Side tribes prepare for war in Canaan, they send an envoy to go confront their brothers in the east. Verse 13 and 14 tell us that. Look there. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. So 11 very important people set out to the east, and Phinehas, the son of the high priest, leads them. And verses 15 through 20 record this confrontation. And as you would have guessed, things get heated. Look at verse 15. They came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and the land of Gilead. And they said to them, verse 16, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, 
What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Those are strong words. They characterize this uh, building project as a breach of faith against the Lord, an act of unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery, and also it's a turning away from following the Lord. It's a forsaking of Him. And finally, this is rebellion. It says, this is adulterous, rebellious, forsaking of the Lord. Could that really be right? What's the harm in another altar uh, as long as they worship just God at that place? I mean, isn't that harmless like our overflow room, maybe? John chapter 4, the overflow room's okay, right? <clears throat> Well, for one thing, um, God knew that other altars constructed in places other than His tabernacle would actually lead to the worship of other gods at those places, uh, like the Canaanites worshiping under every green tree. Um, but even if somehow only the God of Israel was supposed to be worshiped at this place, we've still got a really big problem in Israel. Because God gets to choose how He's worshipped. Uh, God is not only concerned that He is worshipped, the, the first commandment, but God also cares very much how He is worshipped, the second commandment. God's people are not free to choose to worship Him however they decide is most personally fulfilling to them. God must be worshipped in accordance with what He has revealed in the Scriptures. Uh, so yes, if the east side tribes are in fact raising an altar for worship and offering and sacrifice in Gilead, then this is a grave sin. So the Phineas-led delegation from the west has made their initial charges, and next they compare this act of rebellion to two events in Israel's recent past. We see that in verse 17 through 20. Have we not had enough? of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 19, But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Event number two. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel? He did not perish alone for his iniquity. So what you're doing is like the, the sin at Peor and the sin of Achan. And if that doesn't sound cutting to you, and you don't know those stories. In both cases, the judgment of God came upon His people. At Peor, this same generation of Israelites, just before they were about to cross into the promised land, they committed sexual immorality with the women of Midian and worshipped their false god, Baal. Those two things go together frequently. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And those who died by the plague of judgment were 24,000. 
The confrontation in verse 17 is really biting. Uh, Do you think we've had too little of the sin of Peor? It's not enough idolatry and adultery and judgment for you? You think we've enjoyed too little of the plague? The other instance mentioned, the sin of Achan, is recorded in Joshua 7. I'll say the sin of Peor is Numbers 25, if you want to look at that later. Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan, maybe you remember uh, that um, Achan took some of the things that were supposed to be devoted to the Lord as a sacred offering to him by destroying all the possessions of Jericho. And Achan uh, coveted something he saw, took it, hid it among his belongings. And again, the judgment of God came upon the congregation. And so the Western delegation compares uh, this altar building with Peor and Achan to show the urgency of the matter at hand. This idolatry and disobedience is no small matter because God is holy. He is a righteous judge. He is jealous for His own glory, and it is exceedingly right for Him to be so. And so it is exceedingly evil and provoking to Him for us to commit idolatry of any kind. Phineas charges the tribes in Gilead with this great evil, but he also, did you notice, extends an offer for amnesty, an invitation to repentance. Verse 19, there was an offer for any true worshipers in the east to flee and take refuge in the west. Look at that again, verse 19. Now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Well, this really is an incredible offer, isn't it? Um, Shows that the Western tribes are not motivated just by an undue dislike for their brothers in the East. They're willing even to give up some of their own inheritance, some of their own possession to any who would be faithful to God with them. James Montgomery Boyce comments, they offered their own lands if that could be the means of drawing the eastern people back to faithful worship of Yahweh. This is costly love. But this is the kind of love that wins people to God. How much different and how much more effective it would be if we paid a personal price in our attempts to reclaim those who are erring. Well, this is a remarkable expression of the concern for the well-being of the brothers, and we shouldn't be surprised that it comes right on the heels of another remarkable expression of concern for devotion to the Lord. Again, those two responsibilities hold together. And yet, it's clear, isn't it, that the tribes in the West don't just send this envoy and prepare for war because they're concerned God won't get the glory that He deserves. Maybe some of that, but not just that, right? Uh, They're concerned also very clearly uh, that they're in serious danger if this happens. If some of God's people rebel against Him, all of God's people, including in the West, are in trouble. Look at the confrontation again. This is the main point of it, isn't it? Uh, Verse 17, what's pointed out about the sin at Peor? A plague upon the congregation of the Lord. Therefore, verse 18, if you turn away from the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation. And what was the point of bringing up the Achan illustration? Verse 20, Achan sinned and then wrath broke out against all the congregation. 
And then the closing line really hammers home this point, doesn't it? Verse 20, the closing line. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Hey, Eastside tribes, you need to stop because you will not perish alone for this. No one sins in a silo, even today, in a way that's unrelated and unconnected to others. When a brother sins, other brothers are not left unaffected. We heard an expression of this same truth last week, didn't we, from 2 Timothy 2, uh, where the false teachers and quarrelsome people in the church was made clear that that was threatening for the whole church. Their talk will spread like gangrene. It's upsetting the faith of some. It's leading other people into more and more ungodliness. Or consider 1 Corinthians 5, where a church member has committed a really flagrant sin and apparently is unrepentant. And Paul says they should put such a man out of the church because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin spreads. When one member of the body rebels against God, it inevitably affects other members of the body unless something is done about it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, so so we pursue church discipline on an unrepentant sinner. We urge them to repent for their good. We urge them to repent for their good, hopefully in loving ways that cost us personally. We urge them to repent for their good, and then if they don't, the Scriptures say to put them out of the church or else the whole church might be in spiritual danger. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Achan did not perish alone for his iniquity. So we saw earlier, right, obeying God entails a responsibility for God's people. And and now we see a kind of inverse of that, in which forsaking God entails a kind of irresponsibility toward God's people. If you are really concerned for the well-being of your brothers, then you should be very careful to love the Lord. The best thing you can do to fulfill your responsibilities to your brother in Christ and pursue their welfare is not to rebel against God. And so the tribes who live in Canaan are rightfully concerned about this. Well, how will the east side respond? Verse 21, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord... The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. A little panicky, rightfully so. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. And so they call upon God, the Lord, emphatically. And they actually agree with Phineas and the envoy from the West, right? You've come to make war on us for building this false worship center? Yes, make war on us if that's what we're doing. We are in rebellion and in breach of faith and deserving of vengeance if that's what's happening. So, of course, what's clear, isn't it, is that the East Side tribes are not actually doing what the West Side tribes think they're doing. The altar of imposing size is not for worship and offerings and sacrifices, apparently, in competition with the Lord's altar at the tabernacle. Well, 
All right, we've got the wrong idea about the purpose of this structure. What is it for? They correct us in verse 24. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. And so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord, cease to fear the Lord. It's literally the verb. So you've got it totally backwards, Phineas. We're not building this because we want to stop worshiping the Lord at the tabernacle. We're building this because we want to be sure we can continue doing that. We're afraid later generations of you guys might not let us because we don't live in Canaan. So they explain this concern further and the rationale for building the altar in verse 26. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. And so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, to prevent that. Well, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy, a replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offerings, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. No, no. You, it's not that we want to turn away from the Lord. Far be it for us to turn to idols or to unsanctioned worship. This is not for sacrifice. It's, it's just a replica of the altar in the tabernacle that we can point to for a reminder between us that we really do belong to the Lord like you do and with you. I know you don't really trust us, what we're doing here, but don't worry. We built this altar just because we don't really trust you <laughs> and what your children might do to us in the future. And so the West Side tribes have great concern over how prone God's people are to forsake the Lord. And these side tribes have great concern over how prone God's people are to forsake their brothers. This chapter opened, noting that the Eastside tribes did not forget their commitment to their brothers. But they're concerned that once they return home, their brothers may forget them. Wouldn't this be a grievous thing? For the brothers in the West to tell the brothers in the East, you have no portion in the Lord. Have you ever done something like that? Have you ever said something like that? Well, probably not, maybe. But we probably never come out and say something like that to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but I, I wonder if we treat them that way sometimes. Do you have any relationships with sincere followers of Jesus Christ? By that I mean those who repent of sin and trust alone in His work for salvation. Any relationships with one of these brothers or sisters where you treat Him as if He does not have a portion in the Lord? I don't know, maybe his theology is not as good. 
Or maybe if he has some kind of lesser portion than you do. Well, the actual concern of the Eastside tribes, they're not just concerned that their children might get their feelings hurt if they're told you don't have a portion in the Lord. They're concerned that, being, that by being excluded, that could actually lead to their children's turning away from the Lord. Do you remember that in verse 25? If they say to our sons, you have no portion of the Lord, look at the end, so your children might make our children cease to fear the Lord. We didn't discourage you from walking in faith and obedience as we accompanied you in the conquest of Canaan. We're nervous you're going to discourage our sons from walking in faith and obedience if you don't allow them to accompany you, the tabernacle. Here's another important expression of the great responsibility that God's people have to others. Concern that subsequent generations will not forsake the Lord. Parents in Gilead are wanting to ensure that their children will continue to fear the Lord, to love Him and obey Him and serve Him and cling to Him. Please, please don't do this thing that might inhibit my children from fearing the Lord. And that objective you should share, all of you. Uh, for all the young people that you're connected with somehow, please don't do anything that would inhibit them fearing the Lord. The Eastside tribes have shown their hand now and made their appeal. How will the delegation respond? Will they go to war anyway? Some of you have already read the end of the chapter ahead of me. <clears throat> We've seen great concern over forsaking God and God's people and now we see a great preservation of unity in God. Look at verse 30. When Phineas the priest and the, chief, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families in Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. Sigh of relief. Verse 31. Uh, they communicate this approval to the other tribes in the west. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So after sharing that with the Eastside tribes, they go back home to Canaan. They bring good news of peace. Verse 32, then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. Crisis averted. Um, the delegation from the West rightly acknowledges God as the accomplisher of this great preservation of unity and this preservation of true worship. Rightly, in verse 33, they bless the Lord when they hear this report. And in verse 31, Phineas drew this right same conclusion after hearing the East Side tribe's explanation. Now we know the Lord is in our midst. 
because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. When God's people walk in holiness, and when God's people walk in unity around holy devotion to God, this is a sure sign that God is at work in the midst of his people. We know God is in our midst because you have not sinned against him in this way. God has kept you from this evil, and so God has kept us together. And perhaps most importantly, God has delivered us thereby from his own hand of judgment. On this verse, uh, Calvin notes, When the children of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are found free from crime, Phineas and the ambassadors ascribe it to the grace of God. We persevere in piety only insofar as God is present to sustain us by his hand and confirm us in perseverance by the agency of his spirit. Is God present with us to sustain us by his hand? Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the age. God has said, I will never leave or forsake you. So one reason, before moving to the last verse, that this unity was preserved, one of the things God used by His grace to keep His people together in holy zeal for His great name was the care that the Western tribes took. Right? They were rightly concerned to protect the purity of the worship of God. They were right to be willing to go to battle for it. And they were also right to send a delegation ahead to investigate the matter first. Um, a very direct application is to ask yourself, how often might you attack your brother before seeking to understand what's really going on? Unity among God's people is often shattered because we assume the worst about our brothers and then attack them as if it's true. Verse 34 closes the story in the chapter, reminding us of the altar that was left standing east of Canaan. Look at verse 34, last verse. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the altar would remain and serve as a witness between the people of God in the east and the west that the Lord is God. It was a symbol of their unity in God, a witness between them, literally, right by the Jordan River. And the altar between them proclaimed the basis of that unity between them. The Lord is God. The truth about God. Exclusive devotion to the true God. That is what unifies God's people. There can be no true unity among God's people apart from this truth. The Western tribes were right to to put it mildly, be willing to break fellowship with the East if the Eastern tribes were turning away from the truth that the Lord is God, whether in profession or practice. And the Eastern tribes agreed with them, right? If we're denying in doctrine or lifestyle that the Lord is God, then yes, cut us off. The unity that exists among God's people cannot include those who forsake God unrepentantly. That would not be the unity that God desires or that God blesses or the only unity that can really be said to be the great accomplishment of God 
is a unity around zeal for his great name. Yahweh is God. Jehovah is God. The Lord is God. There is to be a witness between us today, which we unite around. And it is a witness that reads, Jesus is Lord. In Ephesians 4, we're called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then we're told what that unity of the Spirit is all about. It only exists around a shared confession of one body and one Spirit, one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And like Israel, we are to unite around a single place of sacrifice for sin. And it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we insist that there is no other altar. This is the one place for offering that brings us peace with God and enables us to approach God in true worship and enables us to dwell in His presence. Only the hill on which Christ died So the true basis of the unity of the people of God, ultimately then, is in the good news of what Jesus accomplished for sinners by His righteous life, His death as a sin-bearing substitute, and His glorious resurrection. And so this story illustrates for us two ways that we can mess up the unity of God's people. One by being too restrictive, and the other by being too permissive. Too permissive. Keeping unity even though someone is flagrantly forsaking God. Too restrictive. Breaking unity because someone lives on the other side of the river. And this is a great struggle for the church through the age to know how wide to draw the circle. We should not dare to keep Christian fellowship with those who do not embrace the gospel. Or those who deny, whether in profession or lifestyle, Jesus as their Lord. And on the other hand, we should not dare to break fellowship with those who do embrace the gospel and do embrace Jesus as Lord. God help us. Do you embrace the gospel? The good news is Jesus. He is the one truth. He is the one way to the Father. He is the new and better tabernacle. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And this Word who became flesh would bear our sins in His body on the tree. And we need Him desperately. Because we are prone to forsake the great responsibilities we have to the Lord and to others. We need the Lord Jesus and His work on the cross. So we, even we, can be forgiven for how we've forsaken God. And how we've turned away from our brothers in Christ. We need the Spirit of God to empower us to walk in faithfulness to the Lord. And to genuinely care about His people. We need the Spirit to make us jealous for the Lord's glory and to make us big-hearted toward all of God's people, no matter where they live. But the good news is that this Spirit of God who does this work is given freely 
to everyone who belongs to Christ. And Christ will receive as his own everyone who will confess with sorrow how they have rebelled against God, who desire to turn from that, and who will trust in the good news of what Jesus has done as their only hope for being right with God. If you will trust Christ today, then it can never rightfully be said to you, you have no portion in the Lord. It is a free gift to sinners who repent of their sin and trust in Christ. A pardon for sin and a portion in the Lord is a gift of God's grace alone, and it's received simply through faith alone, faith in what Christ has done alone. And so all the glory belongs to God alone forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel that makes us reconciled to you. And we thank you for the, that same gospel which reconciles us to one another. God, we thank you that because of what Jesus did, we are not strangers to the covenants of promise. We are, we are not aliens with respect to um, the membership of your people, but you include us in your promises and you include us in the purposes of your grace out of mere mercy that you've chosen to have and show to us and to all who trust in Christ. So God, I pray that you would work in us what's pleasing to you, whatever is needed for each individual here to live a life that is more pleasing to you and is more hopeful in you and is more holy to you and is more comforted by you. I pray you would do those things. Again, for the sake of your great name, And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.